The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Kids, open up a can of whoopafa and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 419 with guest Brian Noyes, recorded live Tuesday, February 3rd, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who just canceled his subscription to Money Waster Weekly, Carl Franklin! Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin here in New London, Connecticut. Richard Campbell in Vancouver. Hey, man. Hey, sir. How are you? I'm doing all right. As uh, you know, it's Tuesday, the 10th of February. And uh, New England is coming out of the wickedest cold snap that lasted pretty much all winter. Wow. Yeah, just nasty. Nasty. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to spring. I'm ready for spring. Well, wait a minute. Didn't you have like three or four feet of snow dumped on you twice in one week or something? Oh, in December, it was just an epic amount of snow. It's still not all melted here. So wasn't it like that? It was like two big four-foot snowstorms or something? It was about four feet overall. I spent the whole summer break shoveling snow. That's just ridiculous. Well, and the thing that's interesting, you know, how many times have I told you, like, it never, snow never stays here, just snows in the morning, rains in the afternoon? Yeah. We've had snow on the ground now for two months. Where's Al Gore? What happened to global warming? Yeah, I'd like some of that right now. (laughs) Yeah. All right, let's get into Better Know Framework. All right, man, what do you got? Well, as you know, Better Know Framework is this little segment I do on .NET Rocks where I shine a light on a little piece of the .NET Framework you may not have heard of, maybe you have, but it's not training, it's just, uh, just bringing it all to light so that you can go look it up on your own time. And today, we're talking about system.windows, which, as you know, is the namespace for... WPF. Right. System.windows.documents.serialization. So this is a part of WPF that provides types that support the creation and use of runtime-accessible plug-in serializers. Note, plug-in. Hmm. So you don't just have option of binary or XML. Yeah, and it's not just one serializer. Yep, that read and write documents in different data formats. Right. So, plug-in serializers, they can only be used with full trust applications. And I'm reading right from the documentation here. When called by the application, the plug-in serializer runs in the same thread as the application and can only access elements created within that application thread. Okay. And so here's the deal. In the documentation, there's a link to a document serialization sample. And the formats that they show, it's like a a file open and then save as. So that opens a save as dialog box, and you can save it as a flow document XAML file. Okay. You know, a a XAML file, an HTML file, a rich text format, plain text, Word XML, or the XML paper specification, XPS. Cool. Isn't that cool? Yeah. So plug-in serializers in WPF. I did not know anything about that. I'm very I'm very fascinated. System.windows.documents.serialization. Know it, love it, learn it. Awesome. Richard, do you have an email? I do have an email. It's just a quick one. Okay. Uh, the title is Bring On the Parallel Solutions. Yeah. 
guys, and that saves on the whole name ordering thing. Yeah, what is up with it? Is this I really a controversy? <laughs> Can you guys think of something else to focus on? <laughs> what the hell? You've probably seen this already, but I thought it was worth mentioning after the last few shows on how on earth we are going to program in parallel gracefully. Basically, it's an up to 480-core desktop machine that you plug into your normal power socket. Oh, and he provided a link to Dell's HPC Solutions. Oh, Shrinksterized that for me. I got to see this. So take a look at Shrinkster.com slash 149U as in uniform. Personal supercomputing. That's right, dude. <laughs> 480 cores representing 1.8 teraflops. Oh, my God. My head is going to explode. Just a few years ago, that would be like the top supercomputer in the world. Now it's a desktop now, machine. Now check out the first line like it's a pitch at a car- like a carnival barker. Tired of waiting for complex analyses to run? You know, exactly. <laughs> we know what I'm thinking about with 480 cores. Maybe Outlook would be fast. <laughs> it gets better. Frustrated by having to compete for time on a shared supercomputing cluster? Hey, who isn't? <laughs> <laughs> it's like they're selling dishwashing liquid. You have a new alternative for parallel computing applications. That's amazing. I'm I'm stunned. Well, now that whole 65 threads for Outlook thing doesn't seem so weird anymore, right? You could run one of these. 480 cores. My God. God now, bless Dell. This is HPC. You're not just going to run straight up Windows on this. In fact, if folks are interested, there is the whole HPC group at Microsoft. We could get them on the show. What is HPC? Tell us. High performance computing. So you don't run ordinary Windows. What does that mean? What do you run? Uh, yeah, you know, this is the thing is 480 cores. This is actually some complicated boards, uh, GPU units, a whole system called CUDA architecture. It's different. And you really have to build your app to feed into it. But, but it's not Windows? Well, Windows is involved, but it's not just Windows. You do have to code specifically to utilize this stuff. Wow. But possibilities, huh? Oh, my God. Fabulous. And Robin ends off his email with, anything that can help me develop for this thing and its descendants without the additional requirements of a padded cell and straitjacket, I'm all ears. You know, we should forego the usual email at the beginning of the show and just have you find something crazy on the web like this. You just want a gadget, do you? Let's just do a toy, I think. (laughs) We'll go back to that, what we used to do in the old days. Oh, no. Well, I would point out one very relevant thing for this HPC solution if you wander around Dell for a while. Won't find a price. Yeah. Because if you have to ask, you can't afford it. I just love tired of waiting for complex analyses to run. (laughs) (laughs) thanks for your email robin and if you've got any questions concerns a show you'd like to see comments on the shows we've done send us an email dot net rocks at franklins.net yep all right well um brian noise is our guest today brian has been on the show many times he is uh uh, one of the principals of idesign and uh which you can find at idesign.net He's well-versed in many, many technologies, uh, focusing on WCF, WPF, and uh, Silverlight, too, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. How you been, Brian? Doing good. Been keeping busy with lots of travel, as usual. Well, you going to the MVP Summit? Absolutely. Always a uh, good opportunity to get a quick snapshot of what's coming, besides just the, uh, especially since I missed PDC last year. Right. Which MVP are you, Brian? I am a connected systems MVP. Ah, very nice. Yeah, okay. Because, of course, depending on the MVP you are, you get invited to different sessions. You get a chance to talk to different teams. It's it's always insightful. I'm an ASP.NET guy, so I'm really looking forward to it because you really get to see where the product's going. Well, it's always a little tough for me because I have a split personality there. I'm actually spending you know, probably 80% or more of my time in the client space these days with, with WPF and Silverlight, but my... MVPness is in connected systems. So, and at iDesign, we do focus a lot on distributed systems and, right. and yeah. service orientation. So, well, and nobody actually stops you. I've discovered from wandering from room to room. Well, the only challenge <laughs> is mainly location. Sometimes, like last year, they had all the client stuff was back in Seattle, right? And all the connected system stuff was in Redmond. So, yeah, you sort so of had to pick long your hike day from room to room. Well, what are you working on these days, Brian? Well, like I said, I'm definitely spending uh, a, a lot of my time on WPF and teaching WPF and consulting on it and really just focusing on 
trying to help customers not just on adopting the technology because, I mean, that's one of the biggest barriers is that everything's so new in WPF, there's a lot to learn just from a pure technology perspective. But the, the focus I'm really taking lately is, you know, first helping them get over that hump of just what are the little bits and pieces of WPF that they have to learn, but then really focusing on, okay, how to, how to properly employ it, um, what are the important aspects from an architecture perspective, what's kind of the intersection between building a WPF app or a Silverlight app for that matter because there's a lot of overlap there, and thinking about things like testability and maintainability and separation of concerns and kind of the intersection, if you will, of the, the alt.net world with the WPF world. What do you think is more challenging for people, the the uh, the ideas behind WPF, the concepts, or the implementation? Um, well, it's a little both. I think it depends on the perspective you're coming at it with. You know, the, the bulk of the people coming at it are coming from a WinForms kind of background, and they're used to their draggy-droppy world. And so, you know, there's a huge cliff they fall off there just in terms of, losing that designer focus because the tools just aren't there yet to have that designer focus. And part of the question is whether, you know, that's the right place to be in the first first place, and that's kind of, you know, comes back to the intersection with the alt.net view of the world. You think uh, the ASP.NET people have it easier? Um, to some degree, uh, it's more that they are used to the fact that the designer does some stuff for them and it can accelerate their development. But I don't think there's an ASP.NET developer out there who doesn't touch the markup on a regular basis. And that's really the kind of mindset you need to come into WPF with is that, you know, especially now where you'll spend most of your time in the markup, but even once the tools get better, I would never want to expect a world in WPF where you never touch the markup. Right. Because the markup's an important part of the architecture. You know, we were talking about talking to Rocky a while back, and he mentioned, I think it was actually not on the show, it was off air, about finding a way to configure Studio so that when you open up uh, a WPF doc, it doesn't open a designer, it just goes directly to the XAML. Uh, oh, which yeah, is, there's, a, there's an option for that. Tools, options, uh, code editor, XAML, miscellaneous, and there's a little checkbox there to say open XAML documents in in XAML view or something like that. Yeah, and and it, and he said it was like a revolution in, for him because it made bouncing in and out of WPF apps so much less painful. It's just the designer was dragging him down. Yeah, absolutely. The only downside to that is there's still a little bug there, uh, even in Service Pack 1, where when you have that option enabled, when you switch to the desi- design view, every single time you first switch to the design view, it will have this nice little link that says you have to reload the designer. So Ugh. You know, it's one extra click, but it's just kind of annoying. That whole refresh the build to clear to, to update the designer thing has been a problem since day one in Visual Studio. Yeah, it's gotten better over time. Like before Service Pack 1, not only did you have to refresh the designer, uh, but once you did, the toolbox was empty, and then you had to go back to the XAML, select a different element, go back to the designer, and then it was live again. It was it was pretty, really annoying at that point. But yeah, I always I always run with that setting uh, enabled because usually you want to jump right into the XAML anyway, at least with the current tool set. So you've done some uh, thinking about cloud computing. Oh, definitely. I'd like to hear your take on this. Well, you know, I think one of the places that the, the cloud initiatives really make sense is for smart client applications. Um, you know, the, the final mile getting to the client, if you will, you know, for the client to talk to a back-end service and make requests and stuff in a RPC-style mode is, is not hard. It, you know, you could use ASP.NET Web Services. You could use uh, WCF for that. That part is not too hard. Um, you know, you do have to open certain ports in the firewall for the back-end services, but generally, you know, worst case, you back off to HTTP, you take a little bit of a performance hit by doing that, and, you know, pretty much any uh, enterprise uh, system is going to allow HTTP through their mm-hmm. firewall. But where it actually gets more challenging is when you want to contact the client and when you want to do things like event notifications to a client and send them updates and things like that. 
Yeah. And there are certainly mechanisms there in, in WCF with callbacks, and you can set up a sort of a pub-sub mechanism. We have a, a implementation of that at iDesign. People can check out in our download section. So there's ways to get it done with pure WCF, but the problem is that final mile to the client. If that client's sitting out on, you know, on a hotel network with multiple firewalls in the way, uh, chances are you're not going to be able to make a direct call into the client. And mm-hmm. so the, the cloud services stuff is nice because it kind of puts this middleman out there in the Internet that everyone can talk to and makes it so that the clients can always talk to the Internet. That's how they're getting to their services in the first place. And they can actually get to those services through those cloud instances, and they can talk to each other directly, you know, through the cloud. So it kind of breaks down that barrier that the client is no longer harder to reach because the client can always talk to the internet, and the internet can basically talk back to it. But we still really don't have a notification option, and the server can't notify to the client. You're still asking the client to pull out, pull, right? Yeah. Well, to it depends. It, They've done some really cool stuff in the uh, in the .NET Services SDK where the, the built-in bindings, well, the first thing they've done that I really like is that, you know, we're heavily vested in uh, in WCF already at iDesign, and that's that's been part of our bread and butter is helping people figure out and, and best use that technology. And one of the things I really like with what they've done with the .NET Services part of the cloud computing stuff is that, the programming API is just WCF. It's a different set of bindings for the most part that you hook up either through config or programmatically. And the programming model is no different because one of the advantages there has been all along the location transparency that you get with WCF services. And the fact that you can you know, run them in process today, move them off to another process, move them to a different server, change protocols, do all that stuff, and just modify config and not have to change the program. So with the .NET services stuff, you know, the first thing that's cool is that you just change your bindings and now you're talking to the cloud instead of directly to a service. But it's still not, there's still some GUI you have to write too. Are there any tools that help with that? Well, if you, I mean, if you already learned WCF, how to make WCF calls from a client and create a proxy and set up the config, then it's it's really no different. Um, So yes, there are tools in that, Visual Studio or there's a command line tool called Service Util will help you generate a proxy. Unfortunately, the way they go about generating it is not that clean, and, and we generally recommend not using that and just hand-coding your proxies. Um, but there is some code generation that can help you there. I think I was reading on your blog you were working with a company called Linkster that, mm-hmm. uh, that they, they have some tools to help you do um, some, of the, some of the goo behind um, uh, cloud calls. Yeah, Linkster is actually a, a slightly different beast. It's uh, To a certain degree, it's a parallel option to adopting .NET services. Um, they're a startup that I've been working with for a couple of years. Uh, first helped them put together their design, and I'm actually working with them right now, writing uh, some of the code to get them to their first release here, which is due out uh, within a few weeks, actually. And Linkster is basically a cloud messaging service provider, um, that the, one of the differentiation there between Linkster and, say, .NET services is that you don't ha- have to have any WCF knowledge. Basically, we've used WCF as, as a way of getting it done under the covers, um, but have encapsulated all of that so there's just a client-side SDK you write against with normal object-oriented calls and stuff, and you don't have to know anything about WCF. Wow. And Linkster provides the whole back-end messaging infrastructure similar to what Microsoft is doing uh, with the Azure uh, cloud computing. It's initiative. funny. I thought that's what WCF was doing so that we didn't have to do any of the remoting goo, right? It's like... Well, yeah, but, you know, as, as people have found, even the WCF programming model is it can be challenging itself. And mm. one of the things Linkster is, is looking to tackle in the long term is also supporting multiple platforms there. So by fully encapsulating the details of WCF uh, and just kind of wrapping it in an SDK, we can write that SDK in multiple platforms and, and you know not have people have to figure out how to do the interop story with, with WCF from, say, Java or yeah. a mobile platform. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I'm just battling how important multi-platform is going to be in that space. Well... The more you move into like a RESTful programming API, it becomes less and less so, right? Right. Because 
if you kind of back off to that's part of the, the popularity of the RESTful model uh, is that it's kind of a least common denominator approach to web services. It's not as fully featured as doing things SOAP-based. You don't have, you know, built-in protocols for metadata and reliability and transactions and security and all that. But, you know, anyone can put together an HTTP request with some XML in it, any technology, and if you can do that, then you can do RESTful service communication. Have you heard anything about um, uh, Windows Mobile, the next version, supporting Azure, and and how important you think that's going to be? And, and any have you heard anything about it? Like I, I haven't, and I'm just thinking that you know mobility is a good place where uh, cloud computing is going to help out a lot. But but I also the warning light goes off in terms of bloat, you know XML bloat, and like we well, have with web services to an extent. No, I think it's the perfect fit there because you're, you know, for example, just last night I was uh, configuring my, I'm a, you know, a recent iPhone lover and uh, I was configuring my iPhone with a, a ser- service that's basically a cloud service called Toodledoo that will help me synchronize my Outlook tasks to my iPhone. And those kinds of things seem like the perfect fit to me for mobile devices that, you know, there's data out there that you want to keep synchronized with the mobile mobile device. Right. And the mobile device is only going to be able to connect to the cloud. So being able to get the cloud services that provide that linkage to other sources of that data, such as, you know, a back-end service or your Outlook data, that's a perfect fit for me. Um, I know that the live mesh, or I'm sorry, yeah. not live mesh, there's, there's a slight distinction there between live services and live mesh. Um, live services is, I'm pretty sure, planning on a, a mobile version. There is a mobile version of live mesh, which is closely related. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going was, you know, where's Microsoft in this with live mesh? They're definitely headed in that direction. Now, I'm not a mobility expert. Um, so in terms of, you know, this current specific support at the Windows Mobile 7 level or whatever, or 6.1 that's currently released, Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where they're at with that. I know from watching some of our fellow RDs uh, blog posts and stuff that there is support there for live mesh. Um, uh, some of our Norwegian uh, RD buddies are frequently uh, blogging about that and talking about it. That that it's uh, I forget whether it's Sandra or Jonas uh, have uh, mentioned. Uh, I think they both yeah. have actually. I think Although Jonas most of the folks I see using mesh. Out, right? are really just using folder share, which has become a part of Mesh. Yes, exactly. So they're using it for, you know, synchronizing data and documents basically through live Mesh. But it becomes a very nice solution for, you know, your little mobile device that just needs a, a file there basically as a data store and wants to keep that synchronized with somewhere else, either their desktop or multiple machines. Pisses me off because I totally had the idea for folder share like two years before. <laughs> I, I called it wormhole, you know? You're an idea man. Yeah, but that's that's the problem when you're idea man because it's like, ah, oh, I could have done that. <laughs> yep. Yep, execution uh, matters. I got no complaints, though. Um, do you think – now, everybody seems to think that WPF adoption will, will go up with the new version of Visual Studio, which, of course, is written with WPF, um, and the tooling is going to be much better. But how how – how big do you think will the adoption be, really? Well, honestly, I think the thing that's driving adoption of WPF the most right now is Silverlight. Yeah. Silverlight's got the buzz. A lot more people are, you know, looking into it because it's it can enable them in the .NET space to do things they could never do before in the web. You know, certainly there's been Flash out there that uh, can do similar things in a different way, but... You have to learn a whole different skill set. But because of a lot of people looking at Silverlight and, and sort of learning the programming model of Silverlight, they suddenly realize that their skills are about 80% transferable to, to WPF. And so, it, you know, the fact that they can use the same skill set for both web and Windows development, I think, is making WPF a lot more attractive to people. That was your mantra last year, Richard, wasn't it? About Silverlight driving adoption for WPF. Well, yeah, without a doubt. Just be, But now the argument is, what was the driver there? Why are people so fascinated by Silverlight? And I always 
grabbing onto the fact that it ran on the Mac. But I get lots of pushback on that, where lots of folks are saying, I don't care I think about it's the, the video. Mac. I, I personally think it's the video. When you got the Olympics and the DNC and the inauguration and Netflix, you know, video is, is huge. And it's probably the most, uh, the most consumed, the most, it's easily by far Flash's most consumed piece is video. Well, I think it's also, that's part of it, but at least in my mind, you know, the need for video is a certain segment. I think the more... It's huge, broad, though. Well, it's a big segment, definitely. Um, but I think the more broad-spread attraction in my mind is just that people who don't live and breathe HTML and JavaScript for their whole life, it, it doesn't taste good. And if they're already doing other forms of .NET development, the attraction of writing all their logic code in in C Sharp or VB, uh, even for a web app, I think is a big draw. You know, whether it really makes that big a difference, because you still have to have a certain web skill set to integrate it into a page and have a you know a decently constructed site where that thing's going to run. But I think that's part of what sounds great to people about Silverlight and has a lot of people looking at it. So back to the question of WPF adoption in 2009, how, you know, how significant do you think this will be? Well, yeah, so, you know, your original question was with respect to the new tools coming out in Visual Studio 10. Well, yeah, and the real question is, you know, we all, we all know it's going to, uh, adoption will rise, but how much is the question? Well, I think, you know, one of the things they're targeting is to try and, it's almost like, you know, the stepping back in time a little bit the way they were trying to bring the traditional VB6 developer into .NET, and they wanted the experience to be as close as possible to what they were used to. Um, mm -hmm. I think a lot of the thrust in Visual Studio 10 with the designer enhancements is to, it, it's a little bit unfair to say, achieve parity with Windows Forms for you know, design time experience because WPF is a really different beast. But if you're willing to start out with a simplistic UI, such as a window form, you know, that is just data over forms, text boxes, combo boxes, data grids, that kind of stuff, they're going to try to get back some of that drag-and-drop RAD development kind of thing. Um, now, I think that will, bring, that will drive a lot of adoption because I think that is a big barrier for, you know, people who just want to quickly hack together an app and get it up and running and present some data on the screen and then maybe later try to figure out how to add some WPF goodness and, you know, prettiness to the app. So I think that will help a lot in terms of the people who are holding back going, yeah, but if I can't get my, uh, you know, little CRUD app up and running in 10 minutes through drag-drop, then I'm not going to do it there because I can do that in Windows Forms. So I think that will bring a lot of people over the fence. But part of what I am hesitant about is whether that's, you know, whether it's good to encourage that those patterns. But there is a bunch of specific things you've got to do in WPF that are sort of unique to WPF if you want to, you know, build decent UIs. Well, exactly. There's, you know, there's all these new constructs in WPF that go way beyond just drag and drop and controls on a form and hooking up some data binding. Um, and that's why I'm, you know, part of that is hard, some of the hesitation, and, and it's also something that, I'm not sure exactly what that design time experience is going to look like and how much it will address those aspects because some of those are just flat out hard to address in a 2D designer, you know, because it's really kind of a multidimensional space right. when you start constructing the architecture of a WPF app. And just the layout subsystem is, you know, one of the biggest parts where because of the, the kind of containers within containers and each one's got its own layout al algorithm and stuff and, you're going to have different behaviors when you resize the form. You know, it's hard to even envision good drag-and-drop metaphors for how you specify those things. What mistakes do you see people making with WPF or the way they try to do things? Well, I think the biggest mistake is what I was alluding to a few minutes ago, is that they're trying to build their WPF apps as Windows Forms app, or at least they're, they're coming into it with the mentality of, you know, it's all just data over forms and this is a new way of getting it done. Right. And I think where you really derive the benefit, you know, the kind of stated benefits of WPF is all the, the ability to do glitzy, eye candy kind of 
you know, graphics and visualization. And that's certainly a benefit if you do it right. It's also the path to hell for your user if you don't do it right. Hmm. Um, but I think the real benefits of WPF is it's just an incredibly well-designed architecture in terms of the separation of concerns they have in there, just the pure separation between the declarative markup that says this is what the view looks like and the behavior that can be totally separated from it. Um, and, and just, you know, there's a bunch of facilities within WPF that people can kind of gloss over and not really notice and understand, but they're not going to really put together a good WPF architecture unless they do understand those. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. You probably know that about 50% of the code in most enterprise applications is dedicated to data access, and about 90% of the bugs and performance bottlenecks come from this code, too. That's why developers rely on Object Relational Mapping Tools, or ORM for short, like the Telerik Open Access ORM. It can help you build a persistent data layer in no time and squeeze out every bit of performance possible. Do you prefer to start from your database tables or from your classes? No problem. Telerik Open Access supports both forward and reverse mapping for six databases. Of course, you can enjoy link support, full Visual Studio integration, and advanced caching. With very little help from you, Telerik Open Access can quickly generate code as good as yours, minus the bugs. Tempted? Curious? Check it out today and download the free Open Access Express Edition at www.telerik.com. I get the feeling that that WPF really synergizes between sort of the elements of WinForms and the elements of DHTML. Like the behavior of routed events feels very DHTML-y to me. From a web point of view, I get that. But I think WinForms people are just baffled by it. Well, exactly. And and you're dead on there. I mean, they stole some of the names from DHTML because the routed events are called bubbling and tunneling events. Right, right. Exactly what they've been called out in that space. And you're you're right. I mean, the best you know the best place to come into WPF is with a mix of traditional web web development, some exposure to Cascading style sheets and DHTML programming, uh, ASP.NET programming with the the markup, the way events are hooked up, um, and then WinForms or at least a smart client perspective, because ultimately you are still building a smart client. So some of the constructs come over from the web space, but you're really still talking about, you know, a stateful desktop application that's running, got its own memory space, and you certainly design things a lot differently based on that execution model than you do based on a web one. Let me ask you a meat and potatoes question here, because I know there's some sure. confusion around this. What's the difference between a, a, an event and a command? Ah, great question. Um, so first off, you have to discern, you know, what you mean by event, because there's both .NET events and in the WPF space routed events that we just mentioned. And routed events are still based on delegates, just like .NET events, but the, the way you hook them up and the way they, they flow really is very different. The routed events are tied directly into the, the visual tree, the elements that compose what you see on the screen, and they kind of flow up and down this visual tree through a routing mechanism, thus their name. And so you really have to get into, you know, there's kind of a laundry list of, of things I really focus on in my classes that these architectural elements, if you will, of, of WPF and routed events is one of those. You really have to dive into WPF, get a good understanding of what the visual tree is and the way routed events flow on the visual tree um, to, to understand that aspect. And if people want a uh, reference on that, they can look at the September MSDN magazine uh, of the last year, September 2008. I wrote an article on routed events and commands. Um, but the, the difference between events and commands really has to do with a couple of things. One is that, you know, in a pure event model, there is no expectation from a publisher that anyone's listening or that they care. And the publisher shouldn't react to anything that the, the subscriber of an event does. Now, okay. that's kind of not purely followed in a lot of places in .NET. You know, there's cancel events where you have to set a property on the event arg and it flows back to the publisher and they change their behavior based on that. But in general with events, you, you know, the publisher shouldn't know or care who's listening. Whereas with a uh, command, 
Commands are based around the idea that something happens, typically triggered by a user, and that there is an expectation that there is a chunk of code somewhere that's going to handle that command and take some action based on it. So when it, does it, is it like a direction thing? Does like an event flow to you and the command flows to... Uh, well, no, I, I guess they are kind of the same thing, but a command is initiated by the user then. Most often, yeah. I mean, it can be initiated programmatically. You know, you could have a, a background thread that's doing something and initiates a command. It is a, a pure programmatic model at, the, at its core, but, you know, most often it's really there to facilitate the user does something on the screen mm. and there's a chunk of code somewhere that has to react to And that's that. the and, difference, really. Is that, mm-hmm. the, that the command does something, whereas an event just happens, and it doesn't have to be handled. Exactly. exactly. And um, com- commands in WPF, you know, one thing you have to discern is whether you're talking routed commands, which are the implementation of commands that are built into WPF, or whether you're talking commands in general, because the, uh, the commanding infrastructure of WPF is based on interfaces, so there's an I command interface and an I command source interface. So like a button in the toolbar implements I command source, and it, it can invoke or trigger the command. And then the handling code has to be something that implements I command. And so that's kind of the, the two interfaces are designed to be hooked up to one another. And so you can write your own command handlers, basically, and this is something we did in PRISM in the composite WPF guidance is there's a number of scenarios where the routed commands that are built into WPF kind of fall down. And, and they are basically an implementation of I command that is suitable for UI scenarios if you're willing to put your handling code directly in the code behind of your, of your windows or your user controls and stuff. But the the implementation of routed commands, where the routed comes from, is that under the covers, they're just using routed events. So they're very tightly coupled into the visual tree. Um, It's very sort of location-dependent as far as where the command invoker is in the visual tree and where the command handler is hooked up. And I go into some of this detail in my uh, MSDN article that I just mentioned. Um, But for simple scenarios, routed commands work great. For things like cut, copy, paste, you know, saving a document, things like that, uh, they work very nicely. But if you get into the, the separated presentation patterns, then you don't want handling code to be in your code behind. You want handling code to be in a presenter, a controller, a view model, um, some of these separated presentation pattern artifacts. And in order to put it there, the routed commands don't work. You basically need a, a custom I command implementation. And so that's what we did in, in Prism is we basically created some custom I command implementations that let you easily hook that stuff up in your your uh, separated presentation uh, objects. And we know what templates are. Um, you know, if you've worked in ASP.NET, you know what templates are. Control templates, data templates, and binding is is also pretty understandable. Well, they are if you're talking data templates. So you're you're exactly right. I, I you know whenever I'm trying to explain this, I always sort of pull the audience and see how many people have ASP.NET experience. Because right. yeah, if you have ASP.NET experience, data templates are very much like the item templates you put in a in a list view or a you know a, a repeater or something like that. Okay. Um, they're just a a chunk of XAML, basically a a, a little isolated visual tree. It says this is the a visual representation of some data object. Okay. But there's also control templates in WPF, which are very, very different. Uh, there's not really a good corollary there, even in ASP.NET, where control templates let you basically take over the entire visual tree for a control um, at runtime without having to subclass that control or, or do a derived control. And so you still get the full behavior of the control in terms of whatever code was put in the code model of that control, but you replace the visual tree with with one that you supply. Yeah, okay. And as far as data binding, I mean, it's been a long time since we talked about data binding in WPF. Um, We did it on DNR TV, but, you know, give us us just the rundown for anyone who's used to Windows Forms data binding. What's the biggest gotcha conceptually? Um, I wouldn't say there's a gotcha, but there's definitely a difference. Um, the, The difference is that, 
in Windows Forms, you still have a fairly tightly coupled model. And this thing came in Windows Forms 2.0 called the binding source component. And it basically put one layer of indirection between the bound control and the actual objects you're binding to. But at, at runtime and at declaration time, you still had this uh, hookup process where you had to, you know, it was kind of like the foot bone connected to the leg bone, leg bone connected to the hip bone kind of thing. And you had your data source object had to hook to the binding source. The binding source had to hook to the control. And so it was a fairly tightly coupled model where there was sort of full hookup at design time of exactly where the data was going to be coming from. And in uh, WPF, the nice thing is that the bindings that you put into the UI markup um, are basically decoupled from both the type and where the data is coming from. So basically you just say, I'm expecting there to be some object out there that has a property called customer name. And uh, if it's there, it'll grab a value and it'll display it. If it's not there, it basically silently does nothing. It, in the design time environment, it will put out some error information if the binding doesn't work out in the output window, so you can try to track those things down. But, you know, it, it basically means that you can have a much better separation between who declares what the UI looks like and who provides the data that populates it at runtime. So that's put together with these two things, a data context is the thing that sort of flows data into the, the declared elements of the view, and then the, uh, the binding itself is the glue that ties it together, but it does it in a much more loosely coupled way. Right, and also styles. If you've used style sheets, you'll be comfortable with the styles in uh, WPF, don't you think? Yep, yeah, another one of those places where the web guys are better off in terms of concepts. It's not that hard to get even as a as a Windows Forms guy. It's, it's basically giving you something you wish you always had in the first place, the ability right. to, you know, say, oh, uh, you know, manager, pointy-haired manager comes in and says, uh, you know, change the font on all of our buttons to 16-point. And in Windows Forms, you went, oh, crap, and you went button by button and changed the property, you know, on yeah. every single control. That was fun, or wasn't it? Oh, yeah, a lot oh, of fun. Oh, yeah, a lot of fun. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe if you were more forward-looking, uh, which a lot of companies were, you know, they had started out and subclassed all the Windows Forms controls uh, and, you know, based everything off their own controls, in which case they could maybe change it in a base class and change it once. But it was still, you know, a pretty tightly coupled model there as well. So the styles in WPF give you this ability to declare separate from the controls. I want to change this property to this, and this one to this, and this one to this. And then you have kind of three options for applying it. Either make it flow down the visual tree and apply to every every instance of a given type, like a button or a text box, um, or based on a base type. So you can say all framework elements. Uh, have this font size, or you can do it more point-like where you can say, you know, I want this style to apply to just this, this, and this control by setting a single property on, on each of those controls. But that single property setting can basically end up setting, you know, 10 other properties through the style. Yeah, it really is a way of encapsulate. The, the other element that I really like about the style approach is this idea of building sort of template-like looks. Here's the sort of look of the site, and then we can refit that look by replace, swapping out the styles without having to redo the page. Exactly. And, and so all these things we're talking about, commands, styles, templates, data binding, routed events, and you know one we haven't talked about yet that we probably should touch on, dependency properties, they all become something you really got to get your head around, and then they become part of the way you develop applications. Um, because, like I said, you can go about it, you know, sort of the way you may have been taught from Windows Forms, and you drag and drop your controls on the form, and you directly hook up events on those, and you put all your handling code and the code behind, and maybe you put some visual enhancements on there. Um, but in order to start putting those visual enhancements, you immediately have to start diving into styles and templates and animations and stuff that are outside of what you knew in the first place. But even just doing the, you know, the data hookup stuff, you need to start thinking of things in terms of data templates, for example, instead of sort of hard coding what the visual representation of that data is in the definition of the UI, you can have that separated by having a data template and just applying the data template to the object and having it rendered out in a portion of the UI. So it's a much more compositional model out of mm -hmm. the box, even with just raw WPF. And then you layer the PRISM stuff on top of that to 
kind of composed of the stuff behind the scenes of the UI, and you have a, a much better architecture. Sort of takes the whole code behind thing to the nth, doesn't it? Well, I mean, to a certain degree, in a perfect world, your code behind in, in WPF will have one line of code. It will be the constructor with a call to initialize component. Hmm. And that's basically the method that does the parsing of the, the XAML that's embedded as a resource. Uh, there are certain things you will have to put in the uh, in the code behind at times, such as if you're going to directly handle a event on something like a, a list list box selected event selected uh, change, selection changed event. If you you know even if you're doing separated presentation patterns and you've got a view model, let's say that has your logic and, and state encapsulated in it, um, you're still going to have to handle or hand off that select selection changed event to the view model. And so you may have some direct event hookup in the uh, in the code behind, but it's just going to kind of dispatch off to where the real logic lives in right. a separated way. Now, um, you mentioned Prism, and Prism has its own events and commands. Are these just WPF events and commands that Prism is using, or are they some other new construct? The way to think about the stuff in Prism for events and commands is they sh- you know, they go to 11, if you will. Uh, <laughs> both the, uh, the famous, uh, famous Spinal line tap. there. Yeah. Spinal <laughs> tap, yeah. So um, basically they take the, the model. Well, actually, let me step back. Commands in Prism take WPF commands to the next level. And specifically what they do, like I mentioned before, is they use the infrastructure of WPF, specifically the, the interfaces defined in the framework for I command source, and they make it so you can hook Prism commands up to any normal high command source, such as buttons and menu items and so on. Um, and there's nothing different on the hookup side, really. But what's different is where you can put your handlers. And that's, that's where they kind of take it to the next level. Is they give you more separation from the UI definition than the routed commands that are part of WPF do. But they're still based on the interface defined by WPF. So from that perspective, they definitely are just kind of an extension of what's already part of WPF for commanding. They just give you more flexibility on locating the handling logic of the command. The events in Prism are actually not related to WPF events at all, but they still you know, sort of take it to the next level, also from the perspective of separation, where they allow you to have the, both the publishing code and the subscribing code completely decoupled from the UI, and also, you know, most importantly, they're completely decoupled from each other. So with normal .NET events, you know, the subscriber has to have a object reference and type information about the publisher to subscribe, and then once they do the subscription, the publisher has a implicit uh, reference back to the subscriber. Um, what we do in the Prism events is put a middleman in there so it follows the pub-sub pattern to give you loosely coupled events. And basically, the publisher and the subscriber don't have to have any type or lifetime coupling at all. Uh, they just depend on a shared service that gives them access to the events, and they subscribe and publish through that shared service. And uh, so they get the, the loose coupling that that implies as far as you know the publisher and subscriber can come and go as they please. They don't have to know anything about each other. Um, we also, you know, common concerns in a uh, event publishing world that we wrapped in there is the ability to filter based on the uh, the arguments that flow along with the events, hmm. making those arguments strongly typed, um, handling weak references so that the subscription itself doesn't keep the object alive if there are no other references to it, and uh, thread dispatching because since this is all based on the UI context of WPF, there's still the constraint that if you fire an event, it's got to and it touches the UI, it's got to be on the UI thread. So we wrapped up all right. the thread marshalling logic into the events mechanism as well. So it basically just gives you a very loosely coupled events model that goes beyond both .NET events and routed events, but fits nicely into WPF apps or any other kind of app for that matter. I, I made an extension, uh, or I took that and and. Um, modified it so it works with Windows Forms. I've got a blog post about that and integrated the results into the uh, composite WPF contrib site out on codeflex.com. And you could potentially even use that model from, say, you know, 
back-end logic and, and sitting behind a WCF service. It's really just a loosely coupled model for objects in the same process to communicate. So definitely PRISM has focused on uh, WPF. Uh, where does Silverlight fit into this equation? So Silverlight definitely fits into PRISM 2. Mostly, well, all the concepts I've been talking about are in PRISM 1, which I worked on uh, with the Patterns and Practices guys and released in June of 2008. They've been working hard on PRISM 2, and that's going to be out in the near future. Uh, I would say, I don't know exact dates, but I guess about a month or two uh, I think they're just working on the final documentation and stuff now. And PRISM 2, one of the primary thrusts of that has been to take the same exact features and, and uh, architectural model and stuff and make it so that you can do the same thing for either a Silverlight app or a WPF app. And the idea is that your code behind the, the view models and controllers and things like that, the ones that aren't directly attached to the UI, should be reusable across both a Silverlight app and a WPF app. Wow. One thing to keep in mind with PRISM is, is a lot of the focus of PRISM has nothing to do with WPF specifically. It's really glue into WPF for all the logic, the rest of your application, and architectural patterns for you know how to have that separated logic and how to dynamically inject things, compose your views, load up modules, um, you know, have these loosely coupled events that have nothing to do with the UI or potentially have nothing to do with the UI or at least are fully decoupled from the UI and sort of the glue code between commands that are invoked from the UI but that are handled from your presenters, controllers, and so on. So a lot of the focus of PRISM is behind the scenes of the UI, if you will. Before we um, Before we hang up here, I want to get your ideas about how the uh, economic downturn is affecting people. Um, it's a, it, it depends on what perspective you're looking at. Uh, I mean, a lot of the customers I deal with aren't really seeing it directly at all. You know, some may be seeing some layoffs and things like that. Um, but, you know, unless their business model is directly impacted and the, the company's taking aggressive cuts, a lot of the customers we deal with, you know, they're developers basically are not being impacted a whole lot. Where I'm definitely seeing it, you know, from our business model and iDesign is people are a lot more cautious to uh, invest in training, which is, you know, almost the wrong approach. You know, this, the, the time they really need their people to be more efficient is, is you know, in times of downturn like this, and, and training is a great way to accelerate the, the time it takes to get work done. So, you know, this really should be when people try to get training in, but unfortunately it's one of the first things to be cut. So definitely we see, you know, impacts in training and, and consulting and stuff like that. We're still keeping busy at iDesign, but, uh, you know, we can definitely see the trends in the industry there that certain things that people are considering to be uh, discretionary as far as their business model are the first things being cut. Yeah, funny what's considered discretionary. Uh, yeah, it's, it's those key enablers for getting the job done, but because they're outside the organization, it's always easier to, you know, decide not to hire an outside party for some specialized task than to let lay someone off, which is understandable from a human aspect, but uh, sometimes, you, you know, from a business aspect, they may not always be making the right choice. Sure. Poking around on CodePlex, I found that uh, Prism version 2 it's still in alpha, but they've had 10 drops of it. Uh, last one was uh, was right at the end of January, so they're, they're plunking away here. Well, the one thing I, I really enjoyed working with the Patterns and Practices guys is, you know, they are the, the one of the most agile parts of, of Microsoft in terms of their development process and stuff. So we did the same thing on Prism 1 that from very early on, as soon as we had something that, you know, was building and wouldn't embarrass us and and was somewhat representative of the direction we thought we were heading, we started putting those public drops out on CodePlex. Right, and every two weeks, too. I mean, literally, very sprint-like kind of boom, boom, boom. Yeah, and their development process is absolutely, you know, mirroring that. Their pure test-driven development, test-first mentality, uh, you know, uh, pair programming, any production code, you have to pair on everything, um, you know, uh, daily scrums, uh, they call them team meetings, but, you know, not officially scrum, but 
same basic concept. Effectively there scrum, yeah. yeah. Not necessarily scrum, but beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had a Jimi Hendrix moment there. Yeah, that was a moment. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, working with those guys was actually, you know, I had done, I had had a, a lot of unit test perspective and exposure to people attempting to do agile and stuff with customers before, but that was my first true immersion in, you know, in what I would describe as a truly agile process. And, uh, and it was very educational and and definitely turned on a lot of light bulbs for me. It's one of those things that, you know, a lot of people talk about test-driven development. A lot of people claim to be doing it and aren't really doing it at all or doing it right. Um, But it's something that it's, it's really hard to do at first, but it's it becomes a natural rhythm, and it definitely, when done right, you know, can definitely lead you to better design. And uh, and you know, a side effect of that is that you have unit tests along the way that help your quality. But you know, one of the the main thrusts, like um, you know, Scott Anselman had uh, had uh, Scott Bellware on there the other day talking about this. That right, it's about design. The thrust of TDD is not. To have unit tests, the thrust is to drive a better design. Right. So, are you uh, are you test driven, test centric, or test first? Are you like uh, are you in the test first camp? Like drive it from test. As much as I can be, I still I admit that I still sometimes have a harder time thinking about the problem when I'm sitting there staring at an empty test method. Yeah. Um, I, I I've been interface driven for a long time. Yep. So very, very often what I do is I jump over and I'll define my interface. And in my mind, it's it's achieving the same thing that the test-driven folks are pushing, which is, you know, think about the, how your object's going to be used before you write the object. Um, and if you're doing interface separation already, then by defining the interface, you know, then you're doing that. The only hazard there is you can still get into some speculative design and start going, well, I think I'm going to need a method that does this, and I think I'm going to need a method that does this. Well, it's all about refactoring, right? Well, yeah, true. But when you go with the pure test-first approach, you know, you don't even put that method on the interface until you've actually, you know, written the code that wants to call it, and it doesn't exist yet. So then you use your refactoring tools to add that method to the interface as you're writing the test. And so it's just, you know, a slightly different way of approaching the same thing, but it does have the advantage that, you know, uh, the, you'll see in the alt.net stuff, people are always using the acronym YAGNI. You aren't going to need it. Right. Um, and, and so it definitely has that YAGNI approach that says, you know, you don't put the code there until you're actually calling it. Mm-hmm. And you've proved to yourself through a test that you need that functionality. Yeah, uh, it's. I think it's human nature as developers to want to cover our ass as much as possible, you know, for future... For the future, you know, rather than designing flexibility into upfront, we want to try to, uh, you know, um, predict how every way this thing is going to be used and then make all the the interfaces for it, even when they're not necessary. And the result of that is somebody goes to use your code and it's way over complex, uh, you know, too complex for what they need. So, well, especially if you start down at the object level, you know. If you're doing right. it out at the interface level, at least you're thinking about the API and how it's going to be called and stuff. Right. But if you just start down and start adding members and properties and methods and stuff to a class, before you've really thought about how those are going to be called, you can definitely end up with a mess. Brian Noyce, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, sir. Thanks again for having me. Well, thanks for coming by. And we'll see you again next time .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, 
at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a 